0: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. What
1: up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. This is a show for the No Sabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community. Listen to Life as a Gringo on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse
0: Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and
4: I'm Holly Fry.
0: We've talked about a lot of different UNESCO World Heritage Sites on uh, past episodes of the podcast. Yeah, they come up a lot. Yeah, so for the most part, these sites have been remarkable and important in ways that come off as generally positive or at least neutral. So, for example, there's Poverty Point, which was the largest pre-Columbian city north of Mexico. We've had a whole episode on that. There are parks and civic buildings and crypts and other structures that were part of the work of Antoni Gaudi, which... He, his work, there are seven different UNESCO heritage sites in the places that he worked on. Um, we also talked about Palmyra in our episode on Zenobia and the Romans, and that was a tremendously important site in ancient Syria, and it's re- recently been threatened uh, and in some cases damaged by the Islamic State. So most of these UNESCO sites that we've talked about don't have like this tremendous baggage associated with them, which is not the case. Today, Today's subject is also a UNESCO World Heritage Site, but its place in world history and cultural heritage has very different connotations than I think any other site uh, on that list that we have talked about before. The Royal Palaces of Obome are a series of earthen palaces in what's now Benin in West Africa, and they're located in what was the capital of the Kingdom of Dahomey, which uh, is a kingdom that people may not have heard of before. Many of these earthen buildings are covered in bas-relief sculptures. If you're not familiar with that term, that is, like, start with a flat surface, slightly raised out from that surface is how it's sculpted. Uh, and these sculptures document the history of the Fawn people who did not have any written language at the time. So this complex is culturally really important to the history of the Fawn people, very historically important to West Africa, but the source of a lot of the kingdom of Dahomey's wealth is that these palaces were being built uh, while the Atlantic slave trade was really thriving. And a lot of the money and power that, that went along with building these structures came from the slave trade. So that means that it's also part of the cultural history of the whole world, basically, not just West Africa in a way that uh, I think a lot of people often don't talk about. So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the kingdom of Dahomey and these palaces and the place that these structures have come to represent and basically the cultural history of the world.
4: The region of Africa that is now the Republic of Benin is home to more than 40 different ethnic groups. The largest of these is the Phone people, uh The phone are traditionally an agricultural society, growing crops like cotton, yams, and millet, and after it was introduced by Europeans, also tobacco.
0: In most of Africa, the phone people recorded their history using oral or visual methods, but not writing. So history was passed from generation to generation through dance and visual arts and songs and stories. Most of the very official retellings, which were the ones that were repeated over and over and over and then changed very little from one storyteller to another, were commissioned by the monarchy.
4: In the kingdom of Dahomey, a royal herald or storyteller was entrusted with both creating the story and relating it accurately every time. He would actually be punished if he got it wrong or if he told a version that wasn't the official one. And one of his primary objectives in telling these stories was to glorify and celebrate the reigning king or past kings. So while history of Dahomeyan kings stayed pretty much the same from generation to generation, other facets of the kingdom's history are less documented and sometimes contradictory depending on who is doing the telling.
0: We do know that three primary divisions formed among the Fon people after their ancestors migrated into what's now Benin and Togo. And this is in the 13th century. These were the Alada, the Porto Novo, and the Dahomey kingdoms. These kingdoms were often at war with, with one another and with other neighboring kingdoms whose people were part of other ethnic groups.
4: Dahomey's kings were central to virtually every single aspect of Dahomeyan culture. They were at the heart of political, social, military, and religious power. Every king was expected to make the kingdom bigger and greater during his rule, while also revering the kings that had come before. After his death, each king had a quasi-religious cult who honored and maintained his memory. And once a new king took the throne, he would choose names for himself, as well as symbols that would become part of the visual art that would document his deeds throughout his reign. Each king also had a motto that represented his rule.
0: Dahomey's first king, for example, was Garnahesu, who came into power around 1600. His symbols were a male bird that was later named after him, a drum, and a hunting stick. And his motto was, I am the biggest bird and the loudest drum. You can't keep the bird from singing, and you can't keep the drum from beating.
4: Perhaps because Dahomey's second king, Dako, came to power after usurping his elder brother, its third king Hujabaja set down a specific process for naming a successor. Although the title of king was inherited, it wasn't as simple as going from father to eldest son. Each king selected the male heir he thought would be the best candidate to follow him on the throne. Royal ministers and diviners would have to approve this choice before a new king could ascend.
0: Kujibaja was also the king who established Dahomey's capital at Abome. This is about 65 miles or 104 kilometers inland. If you're imagining the coast of Africa where it makes that sharp kind of east west turn, uh, Benin, what's now Benin, is, is part way down that flatter area. So it was basically north in from the coast rather than east or west, as you might imagine in other parts of Africa. So King Hujabaja also instituted a lot of the traditions that would become hallmarks of Dahomeyan culture. One of these was a month-long annual custom ceremony, which was for the entire kingdom to participate in, as well as any visiting dignitaries from other kingdoms or other parts of the world. The annual custom ceremony was basically a big, colorful festival with military parades and religious observances that were tied to voodoo beliefs and practices that were part of Dahomeyan culture.
4: The voodoo tradition in Dahomey included belief in the spirit world, possession of ancestral spirits, and reverence of the spirits of deceased ancestors. It also involved animal and human sacrifices. The persons sacrificed were typically prisoners who were executed in honor of prior kings. Some wives of deceased kings would also sacrifice themselves as part of funeral rituals to go with the king into the afterlife, while others would continue to live in his palace and maintain the king's memory.
0: In addition to establishing the capital and instituting the annual customs festivals, King Hujabaja built the first royal palace in Abome. This is a collection of courtyards and their surrounding buildings, all of them contained within a cob wall. This was, in part, a defensive maneuver. King Hujabaja knew that since the kingdom's goal was to expand and get bigger, doing so was going to involve conquering neighboring kingdoms, and so he needed to be able to defend himself and the royal family from any kind of retribution or counterattack. So he built a defensible palace and settled his relatives in the surrounding area so that he could provide sort of a bigger buffer between himself and any potential attackers.
4: So, King Hujabaja is also believed to have started Dahomey's first all-female fighting force, who Europeans would later refer to as Amazons.
0: If that piques your curiosity, I actually already have a book on them, and unless something goes catastrophically wrong and I figure out it won't work somehow, these uh, women will be an episode later on.
4: And then we can talk about Wonder Woman. Uh, the Dahomey and Amazons became an elite fighting force and a traditional part of the King's Guard.
0: Hujibaja ruled from about 1645 until 1686. His successor was his son, Akaba, who held the throne until 1708. Akaba's brother, Agaja, was the next in line, and he conquered a number of neighboring tribes and kingdoms, including ones that had larger armies than the kingdom of Dahomey did. One of Agaja's conquests was the port town of Wida.
4: WIDA was already an important player in the Atlantic slave trade at this point. And conquering the port at WIDA meant that the Dahomey Kingdom soon had its first contact with Europeans more than 200 years after they first arrived in that part of Africa and well into the establishment of the slave trade, but before its peak.
0: The kingdom of Dahomey had already shown itself to be eager to expand and conquer its neighbors. And now with the direct contact with Europeans and the opportunity to sell their prisoners of war as slaves, the kingdom basically had access to a huge pool of resources to be able to continue its expansion. So we're going to talk about exactly how that played out after a brief word from a sponsor.
1: and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant,
3: It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit.
2: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trepani. I always wanted to be a criminal.
0: So to return to the peak of Dahomey's history and the peak of its its power and influence, once it had control of the port at WIDA, Dahomey began selling slaves directly to Europeans, who at that point were buying about 6,000 slaves a year from that part of Africa. By the time the Atlantic slave trade was abolished, roughly two million slaves would leave West Africa from the coast of what's now Benin.
4: The cycle played out like this. Dahomey would conquer one of its neighbors and take its citizens as prisoners of war. It would then sell those people to European slave traders, most of which would be sent to plantations in the Americas. Dahomey would accept payment in the form of, among other things, weapons, which it used to strengthen its army and conquer new territory and defend itself from neighbors.
0: Eventually, this cycle meant that Dahomey was one of the largest and most powerful kingdoms in all of Africa, and it had a near monopoly on the West African slave trade. It had a military force that was armed with weapons that were acquired through the slave trade. And at this point, about 12,000 soldiers served in its army, along with about 4,000 of the so-called Amazons.
4: However, the peak of Dahomey's power didn't actually last terribly long. As Dahomey was at the height of its influence, the abolition movement was thriving in many parts of the world, and several nations had already stopped participating in the Atlantic slave trade, even if they still had slavery within their borders. This also meant that while Dahomey was selling fewer slaves, those slaves that it did sell went at a much higher price.
0: Basically, once the cultural... Thought turned against slavery, they were able to be like, well, since everyone hates you for this now, we're going to charge you more money. As the Atlantic slave trade declined, European powers turned their attentions in Africa away from acquiring slaves and toward Africa's natural resources. Many European powers began establishing colonies in Africa in search of plants and minerals and the like, The reason we're not really talking about America here is that while America had become an independent nation at this point, wasn't really to the point of sending colonists to Africa yet. That America was or the United States was really just colonizing uh, North American territory at this point. So, in Dahomey the resource that European colonists were looking for was mostly the palm nut, which could be used to produce an oil that could be uh, applied to anything from lubricating machines to making soap. King Guizo established a palm oil industry in Dahomey while continuing to also trade in slaves.
4: When King Guizo's successor, Glele, took the throne, Dahomey was under huge diplomatic pressure from various European powers to end both the slave trade and their practice of human sacrifice, which was still taking place at annual customs. Glele resisted this, and Sir Richard Burton, after visiting from Great Britain, wrote of the diplomatic efforts, quote, To abolish human sacrifice here is to abolish Dahomey. The practice originates from filial piety, it is sanctioned by long use and custom, and it is strenuously upheld by a powerful and interested priesthood.
0: When the transatlantic slave trade was finally abolished in the mid-19th century, Dahomey's power really did start to wane pretty quickly. After a series of confrontations with the Egba Kingdom, Dahomey's declining army could no longer stave off incursions from the French. Dahomey fought back against France to the early 1890s. And then in 1892, after a series of battles in which Dahomey continually lost ground to the French, the Dahomeyan army retreated to the capital at Abomey. That's when King Behanzin, who was the penultimate king of Dahomey, ordered the army to torch the city, rather than allowing the kingdom's relics and the sacred tombs of its ancestors and past kings and other important cultural sites to fall into French hands.
4: King Bahanzin surrendered to France on January 25th of 1894, and he went into exile. Dahomey became a French protectorate, and the French installed Bahanzin's half-brother, Agoli Agbo I, to the monarchy, before they deposed him and installed their own provincial government. Even though the royal lineage has continued to today, Agoli Agbo is regarded as the last reigning king of the Dahomey kingdom.
0: Similarly to the British view of Rhodesia that we talked about in our recent podcast on that subject, France did not view the people of Dahomey as, quote, mature enough to govern themselves. So the people of Dahomey were both heavily taxed by the French and highly restricted in what they were allowed to do. Most traditional customs and observances were banned, not just the human sacrifices. Things that would be viewed as much more innocuous were also outlawed. French missionary schools were instituted to try to move children away from their cultural heritage and onto a European Christian worldview.
4: It seemed like at this point, uh, the history and the culture of Dahomey was likely going to disappear, especially since the primary visual record, those bas-relief sculptures that were on many of the palaces, had been damaged or destroyed by fire. However, the oral traditions of songs and storytelling were entrenched enough in the Fon people that Dahomeyian history was kept alive through them.
0: In 1945, the historic Museum of Abame was established in the Palaces, which was the first national museum in West Africa.
4: The Republic of Dahomey became independent again, first as an independent French state in 1958, and then fully independent in 1960.
0: The government of Dahomey sought UNESCO's advice on how to preserve the remaining structures and the bas relief sculptures in Abomey in 1977. UNESCO offered advice and assistance and placed the entire compound on its list of endangered sites in 1985.
4: In 1988, the Palace of King Lele was entirely rebuilt because of damage. By then, it was one of the last intact buildings still standing on the site. Before the existing structure was demolished, the 56 bas-relief sculptures that were on it were cut out of its walls uh, to preserve them. Most of these were badly damaged and only 50 could be saved.
0: The Getty Conservation Institute visited the site in 1991 and determined that all of the remaining bas-relief sculptures on the site, including those 50 that had been cut out of the walls of King Glele's Palace, were critically endangered. So from 1993 to 1997, the Republic of Benin's Ministry of Culture worked together with the Getty Conservation Institute to conserve as many of the reliefs as possible.
4: This started with studying exactly what factors could cause these sculptures to deteriorate, preventing further damage, and rebuilding the palace they had originally been removed from. Local artists assisted with the project as well and made replicas of the original bas-reliefs, which would be installed into the rebuilt palace. The original bas-reliefs still exist, but they are part of museum exhibitions, while the replicas adorn the replica palace walls. The Republic of
0: Dahomey was renamed Benin after a new constitution was adopted in 1990. And we're really just glossing over a ton of instability and turbulence, a couple of other fires that have further damaged the palaces. But very, very long story, very short. Benin is still a republic and its government has become a pretty stable democracy. And conservation and repair work are still ongoing in Abomey on these palaces. We're going to talk about the palaces specifically and the sculptures and why they are so culturally important after another brief word from a sponsor.
1: What up, I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the No Sabo kids, the the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth, issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews for within inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network.
3: It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit.
2: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con The Story of BitCon. Over this nine part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money?
2: You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could
1: you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world?
5: Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Back into uh, a domain. Once the capital was established at Abome, each king of Dahomey built his own palace, following the same general layout, architectural style, and building materials as the previous kings. By law, only royalty could build structures taller than one floor, so the palaces at Abomey were much taller than the homes that surrounded them. This made the whole compound look imposing and powerful.
0: The word palace here is also kind of misleading. We alluded to this earlier in the show. Each king's palace was really a compound of earthen buildings with thatched roofs that were arranged around multiple courtyards. Each courtyard and its buildings had specific functions and a design that was related to governance, to religious observances, or to some other activity.
4: One of these was the podoji Courtyard. We're guessing at the pronunciation there. And that is where the king held court. Adjacent to that courtyard were the council meeting and the guards' quarters, along with other administrative buildings.
0: Yeah, to allude to what Tali's talking about, this is a case where we found multiple contradictory pronunciations for everything from reputable sources. I'm not saying random things on the Internet. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there would be a UNESCO video and Merriam-Webster with totally different pronunciations of everything or no pronunciation. Another was the Ajalala Henu Courtyard which was uh, for more religious significance. The buildings around it were for ancestor worship. They held altars. Also, formal receptions would be held there. Adjacent to the Adjalala Henu courtyard was the Adjalala building, which was this huge reception hall with many, many doors and a bedroom on either end. The back doors, which faced away from the courtyard, led to the king's private residences.
4: So by the time the last palace, as we're using that word today, was built, the overall royal compound at Abome was enormous. Today, the World Heritage Site incorporates 190 acres, that's roughly 44 hectares, of land.
0: When the compound was burned, rather than having it fall into the hands of the French, many of the thatched roofs were what was completely destroyed. So even though the earthen walls of the palaces themselves were fire-resistant and probably survived the initial fire, their lack of roofs meant that the structures themselves were exposed to the elements. And because this part of Africa has two rainy seasons a year, the, the weather, the wet weather uh, caused the walls themselves to deteriorate.
4: In the 1930s, many of the thatched roofs were replaced with corrugated tin, which removed the overhang that had protected many of the bas-relief sculptures. So while the structures themselves were more protected with this setup, the bas-relief sculptures were more vulnerable and were consequently damaged by the elements.
0: King Agaja, who was the fifth king of Dahomey, was the first one to adorn the walls of his palace with these sculptures. They were made by moistening the earth from termite mounds and adding in fibers and other materials to strengthen that kind of mud and then sculpting it and allowing it to dry. The finished relief sculpture would be painted with dyes and pigments that were made from plants and minerals. Although many other arts and crafts of the Fon people were traditionally done by women, only men carved the bas-relief sculptures that were used in the royal palaces.
4: Similar sculptures did also exist elsewhere in the kingdom and in other parts of the Fon culture. But in the palaces, they became an integral part of documenting the kingdom's history. In addition to historical events, myths, and legends, they also depicted animals and plants native to the area, geometric symbols, and other visual elements.
0: The narrative sculptures are presented as pictograms that represent battles or achievements of the king, and their tone is overall pretty celib- celebratory of the phone people and of the dynasty of the kings. Some of them do depict real events, while others record myths and legends of the phone people, as we alluded to previously.
4: Bas-relief sculpture continues to be part of artwork among the phone people today. Today, there is actually a slave trade memorial at the port of Wida, which uses bas-relief sculpture to depict chained slaves being led to a boat, seemingly disappearing into the distance. It's called the Gate of No Return, and it sits at the end of the Road of No Return, and is meant to commemorate both the slaves who left from the coast of Dahomey and their descendants who live today.
0: The site at Abome, in addition to being... You know, a historical site that is preserved because slavery is an enormous thing that happened in the past that we should talk about rather than ignore. Uh, it's an active cultural site for the phone people today. King Agoli Agbo Dejelangi, which is uh, he's also known as Agoli Agbo Third, has been king since 1989, although another king was a rival for the throne from 2000 until his death in 2013. King Agoli Agbo III continues to carry out rituals and ceremonies at the site. A UNESCO video shows him meeting descendants of enslaved Africans, explaining that he thinks that both Westerners and Africans were both responsible for the slave trade, and then apologizing for what happened.
4: Benin formally apologized for its role in the transatlantic slave trade in 1999. President Mathieu Karakoy followed his apology, which was addressed to the enslaved Africans, their descendants, and the world, with a tour in which he and other government officials traveled to other nations to apologize for their ancestors' role in the slave trade and to ask for forgiveness.
0: So I, I came at this subject today from kind of a weird angle. Uh, I read a very interesting but also critically missing important details. Tumblr post uh, about these palaces and how cool they are and the sculptures and all this stuff. And I was like, that sounds really interesting. And it did not really mention uh, Benin or the slave trade or anything like that. And because I was not really familiar with the history of Dahomey, I had no real thought that that would play into it until after I got a book and started researching it. And I kind of went, okay, how did that entire post have all that stuff in it and not this crazy critically important detail. Uh, and so for a while, I thought about not doing this episode. And then when I got to the part about uh, the the people today whose ancestors were an active part of the slave trade trying to uh, document this and actively talk about it and then going on a, wor- a world apology tour, that changed my thought a little bit. Um, one of the trends I see on our Facebook page when we will post uh, podcasts or articles or whatever about slavery is that people will come and make this content, this, these comments that are like, well, the people in Africa sold the slaves. How come nobody ever talked about that? Right. Number one, that's like a, the fact that one person was selling slaves does not make it okay for people to have been buying the slaves. (laughs) Yeah. First thing. (laughs) Uh, And the second thing is, as I was researching this, I kept finding over and over uh, governments in Africa who have like made these massive monuments to the slave trade and have formally apologized to the slave trade. And there's a whole separate debate about whether governments should apologize or not. But it seems to me that a lot of people do, in fact, talk about this, especially from the African perspective. So the better question would not be, why does nobody talk about this? But more like, why are why are people not listening?
4: <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not something that comes up much in the U.S., for sure. I can't speak to other countries about it. But, yeah, it's not like this is mystery information that's being withheld. These are pretty public and publicized tours of apology and discussion that are going on. Right. So people are talking about it.
0: Yeah, granted, a lot of them were at this point. Ten or fifteen or more years ago, uh, and I—it's still baffling to me that I read this whole post on Tumblr that just that managed to never mention the slave trade at all. Uh, but yeah, that's—I'm uh, gonna link to some pictures of the Gate of No Return monument because it's kind of stunning to look at. So, uh, this has been a pretty heavy episode today. So I have some listener mail. Is it lighter in tone? Much lighter in tone, it is about basically nothing of consequence. It is from Dan. Dan says, first, let me tell tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. I have both an undergraduate degree and master's degree in history and always find your show enlightening and enjoyable. What I enjoy about your podcast is that you discuss things outside my field of study. You give me a little bit of history in areas that I don't know much about. I have to chuckle about all the people who complain about your pronunciation of different, not so easy to pronounce names. You're talking about it reminds me of two experiences, humorous to me, that I had while living in Italy. I had to take a train from northern Italy to southern Italy in my best-practiced Italian, which wasn't that good. I asked the gentleman at the ticket counter for a ticket to the small town of Pescashi. He would have thought that I was speaking absolute gibberish. His questions and reply immediately exceeded my Italian skills, only with the help of the person in line behind me, Could they find my destination by searching through a book of stations? Then, in a tone slightly filled with contempt, the man in the ticket office said, or something to that point, Oh, you mean Pesquicci? Boy, did I not feel so bright, wishing I spoke better Italian. Fast forward eight hours when I arrived in southern Italy. Since Pesquicci... Is such a small station, I had to switch trains to a small train car in the front end of the very last platform. Not wanting to take the wrong train and armed with my new pronunciation, I asked the conductor, Is this the train to Peskeachi? He responded while shaking his head to the side, No, Peskashi. <laughs> All I could do was chuckle, I couldn't win the pronunciation game. Uh, I'm going to skip the second part of his letter because it goes into how to pronounce his surname and we don't usually get that deep into being able to identify people in our listener mail. Uh, I wanted to read this for two reasons. One, it's funny. And two, it reminds me of a story that I have told to Holly before and was going to tell on a previous episode and then didn't do. Uh, When I was in college, I had a two day comprehensive exam that I had to pass to graduate and I had a study group of folks who mostly were also writing center peer tutors with me. And we were all on a trip to present uh, a talk about writing center peer tutoring at a conference. And we ran into a prior colleague of ours and her brand new Ph.D. advisor. And we were all kind of swapping stories about studying for this exam. And we talked about our favorite literary term, which was hamartia. And her instructor did not know what we were talking about. And we were like, oh, you know, it's like the fatal flaw in in a hero of a story that causes... Uh, the downfall of the hero and her Ph.D. advisor went, oh, Marsha. And we were all mortified because we had learned the wrong pronunciation from our, you know, bona fide Ph.D. in English instructor. Years and years and years, almost 20 years later, I was telling Holly the story and I went to the dictionary to look up the word. And what was there? Hamartia has the pronunciation. (laughs) So that is our nothing of consequence listener mail to cap off our very heavy episode about the spoils of the Atlantic slave trade. So thank you, Dan, for writing us something a little lighter to end this episode on. If you would like to write to us about history or anything else, we're a history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com/slash mist history or Twitter at Mist History. Our Tumblr is mist We're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash Mist History. Our spreadshirt store, Mist and has t-shirts and phone cases and other good stuff like that. Uh, if you would like to learn more about what we have talked about today, You can go to our parent company's website. That's HowStuffWorks.com. Put the words human trafficking into the search bar. The trafficking of human beings is not something that has gone away. It still exists today. So read that article to learn more about it. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where we have show notes and an archive of every episode we've ever done. I'll put in some links to to pictures of these palaces and of the monument to the slave trade that's at WIDA, And you can do all that, a whole lot more. HowStuffWorks.com or MythInhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics visit HowStuffWorks.com
3: To getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get.
2: Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the
5: podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Voice.